Welcome to Advancing the Conversation with Dr. Christy Carnahan and Dr. Kate Doyle from the University of Cincinnati's Special Education Department. I'm Ashley Barla, your host. We started this podcast in an effort to have real conversations about the role of self-determination in all our lives, specifically in supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. If you're a teacher, a person interested in becoming a teacher, a parent, a sibling, or a person with a disability, this podcast is for you. We hope you'll join us on this journey as we learn about the role of self-determination in our lives. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us about yourself, your work, your family, what ties you to the disability community, all that good stuff. Sure. So I'm Sarah Bitter. I am, I am a mom of two boys that have a developmental disability. My background is I'm an attorney and through my kids and through my life, I have become what I call a disability rights advocate. I am currently a school board member in my children's school district, and I am, I'm just a person who really tries to do whatever I can in whatever capacity I can to help people, kids and adults living with disabilities and families, just trying to help families navigate the world when they have a child with a disability. Seems so simple, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really easy. (laughs) Yeah, you just made it sound so simple. Sarah, let's start off with this. Our main topic that we talk about here on the podcast is self-determination. Can you tell us in your words what self-determination means? Sure. I would, in the most basic sense, obviously, self-determination, when you ask, what does that mean? It means, can you yourself determine what your life will be? But the way I... uh, the way I see it, and to try to say it in a different way, maybe metaphorically, and in my preparation for this podcast today, I would say it would be self-determination is like writing and singing your own song, right? It is having a chance to do it, to do something that's for yourself and that you've been able to prepare for, and then you've been able to deliver it or you've been able to do it. It's really what we all want to be able to do in life, just sing a song, write our own song. If we could write it, that'd be great. Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. This popped into my head as you were saying that. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking most of the way that I know you, Sarah, is through hearing you talk about your interactions with teachers and your kids' teachers and your boys experience in schools when your boys walk into a classroom what is it you hope the teacher knows about self-determination I hope that they know that's the ultimate goal that's the future so there's two ways of looking at what when they see my kids I hope they're I would love to be able to just quickly instill in two things one is there's going to be a beginning part of the introduction to that to my kids let's say just using my own children as an example where you have to get through some planning and preparing for anxiety and for different learning styles and needs but ultimately once you can get through that section which is a big part the ultimate goal in life is to become an adult and be able to make decisions for yourself or at least be able to get the support you need to make those decisions which is really self-determination so To prepare them, it's hard to think about a child who's only five, let's say, 
and how to help them navigate their classroom. But in the same back of your mind, just like you would for any student, try to remember that that person is going to grow up and needs to be able to make decisions. You got to start early, just like we do with every kid. We have to start early learning how to do things on our own and learning how to prepare for the future. And that comes with self-determination, right? Get your backpack ready. Like you might have to help with getting the backpack ready, but really you got to practice learning how to do that on your own. It might take a lot longer to learn that, but that's key. And you always have to have that in the back of your mind. Self-determination should always be there at all times, no matter how old that child is, even if they're three and they're in an early intervention program. And it's hard to, it's really hard to think like that when they're really little, but you have to start that young. And if you don't, you might not get to self-determination. Can you talk, Sarah, about your own self-determination journey, maybe in a professional or a personal sense? How did self-determination kind of become a focus for you personally? I guess I'll blend personal and professional because that's really what I have self-determined that I would do in my life because really what I did was I said, I'm going to go, I grew up just like a lot of kids and I knew I wanted to have a certain profession, my profession that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I knew from a young age that I wanted to do that. So I studied hard, I did all the right things that I needed to do to be able to get into a law school. And then I went to law school and then I became a lawyer and then life threw me a curveball. And I, I don't necessarily think it was a bad curveball, but I had two children that have a really significant disabilities and I had to change my path completely. So I still am a lawyer and I still care about policy. I care. I think of like a lawyer. I it's in me, it's ingrained in me. It's just who I am as a person, but I also have to help children be able to make, be self-determined right in their lives. And I had to rethink everything of how I would go about helping them and then try to change it and even try to help other people as well. Other people with disabilities. And I actually like to think that I'm not just helping people with disabilities. I'm really helping other groups as well who might be needing of a problem solver, right? Somebody who other groups, other the systems that we live in to try to think differently. So I would say for me, my professional personal self determination journey is just having to first navigate my own life and my own career wishes and then having children and then having to take that completely off myself put it onto them and then somehow to blend it back and try to tie tie it together to try to do something positive for the greater good that's my goal is just to try to be helpful to the larger in the larger picture in the larger scheme of things wherever I can so I was able to do that that was my choice I had a lot of help, a lot of help. I'm, I've met some, like even talking with all of you, I've met people just like you supply that out. And I've learned from so many people, but I was able to shape that with the help of others and with the influence of others. But ultimately it was, it's me. I determined that. I think those relate. I think that's not something we've talked about. We've touched on a little bit, but that relationships our relationships with other people really are a part of our self-determination journey because they open up our eye to what is possible. Like I only have my doctorate because two professors said to me the last week I was graduating from my undergrad, oh, you'll go get your doctorate someday. I didn't even know that was like a thing. And it wasn't that I then did it because they said I should. It took a lot of other things, but it's just like when 
it goes back to what we were saying earlier. To be self-determined, you have to have enough knowledge to know what the choices are and to understand the consequences of those choices. And they were saying to me, this is a choice. And then you can go look for it. And I think I, that isn't something we've talked too much about here, but relationships, I think, are really key for self-determination. Oh, yeah. And experiences are important. If I didn't have these experiences, I would never, I would never this and it may sound trite but I would my life is richer because of the experiences I've had with my children and I think you will hear that a lot from families who have kids with disabilities there's a lot there can be many challenges and there can be many parts where you're just like out of breath and you're just it's hard but there I would say so many families would say wow it really opened up my life in a much better, richer way because of the relationships that you encounter with so many amazing people that you would never have had that chance before. You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't have had it. And um, that that's true. That's very true. Sarah, I would actually rank you as one of the most self-determined people I know. And I know a lot of amazing people. And I think a part of it is your resilience I'm curious, like what supports were in your life to develop such a sense of resilience is one I'm wondering about and B, what role does that play in just being a parent? I will say my life experiences as a child helped me be more resilient as an adult, for sure. I think growing up, I was raised primarily by a single mother. I really had to learn from a very young age how to take care of myself. And so that helped. I think about it all the time. Like when I was little, I was so mad at my mom that she didn't pack my lunches for me. I was so mad. I'm like, everybody else's moms do that. Why do I have to do mine? And I'm not kidding you. As I'm packing my lunch every day for these kids, thinking they need to be packing their own lunch. I need to teach them. I'm thinking like, I'm able to do this because I have had years of like, early child experience with that. So that's part of it. It's not just experience. It's just resilience of, okay, this is hard. Like we got a choice here. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the choice that <laughs> I think that I do think that experience your own personal experience really does help weigh in on your own resilience. Right. And that's part of it. And your grit comes from that. And some of your family members seeing your parents or your grandparents or your great grandparents and what they've gone through. It's generational, but also I've been Oh, yeah, that was the first question about resilience. What was your second part of your question? I'm sorry, I forgot that part. Just thinking about what role does that play in parenting? Because I know sometimes right. I'm faced with decisions where I want to um, stop some failure or stop some pain for my kid. And I have to take yeah. a step back and say, yeah. And I like ask myself this question all the time because my kids are living such a, like they have so, they're provided with in some ways so much more than what I received as a kid because we were able to provide that. And then here I am learning about what my kids will need in their future. And because they have a disability, so I'm trying, I'm realizing I need to back off. I need, but I need to do some more intentional backing off, but guiding. I really need to, I can't make everything easy, as easy as possible for them. Although I don't think they live easy lives. That's the thing. It's like a blended thing. They have so many challenges and struggles that I feel like I need to assist, but I have to find that just right assist so that they're maximizing as much of it as possible. But it goes back to what you said. 
Dr. Carnahan, I think experiences with people and relationships. There are people that my kids are with that do things with my kids, like at school or in the private world where I'm like, oh my gosh, I would never do that. And my kids rise to the occasion like that. And then they learn how to do it. And I'm like, oh, I would never have tried that. Wow. They just like my husband taught our kids how to ride the bike. Like my son rides a bike, rides a bike. And I don't know that I would have done that. So just as an example. And what about experiences like outings and just exposure to different environments and different stressors and that sort of thing? How can those experiences shape one's self-determination journey? They, greatly, I will say. I, I, I have thought about this recently a lot because I've been, I really try to get my kids to experience as much as possible. An example, my son and I just went to New York City, to Manhattan, to go visit our, my niece, his cousin, to go see her play volleyball in college at, in New York. So I did that with him. I made that happen. It was a lot of work that went into it. We rode on an airplane. We rode in Ubers. We did all of that. It could have been bad, right? Like something really negative could have come from that. A lot of prep went into that, but it, it didn't just happen overnight. We've been traveling. My, my family's from Germany. Half of my family's from Germany. So we go, since he was born, we've been going back and forth between the U.S. and Germany. So that re, that's a lot of traveling experience. So going there was a tiny little two-hour flight, nothing compared to what we've done in the past. So I know that sounds almost excessive probably to some people like, wow, that sounds so incredibly big. That's a big outing. And it is, but I would, but we also went to a family, a Fragile X family gathering that we did with our community at Cincinnati Children's, which we haven't done in a few years. And my kids were really anxious, just like every other kid that was there, because that's a trait. And we, but we did it and we all did it. Like every family did it. And we all looked at each other and we said, okay, we know this initial coming into this family picnic is going to be tough. And then sure, sure enough, everybody did have a high anxiety at the beginning. Once they felt comfortable with the space and they realized the how it was, everybody calmed down, everybody did well, but absolutely it helps you become more resilient. It's like, you want to find that just right amount. You don't, you have, you need to do it. But don't do it to the point where you cause so much anxiety that you never want to do it again. And that requires practice and planning. It's hard for families. It's really hard for families. I know that. I'm very, I understand that. Sarah, one of the, my experiences with you also has been just like how you're championing your kids' inclusion in school. Talk about that and that connection. Okay. So my personality style, my background, probably my legal training, that kind of thing. I'm okay with, I'm okay with couple things. I'm not okay with it. I don't enjoy it, but I, I get comfortable with being uncomfortable or I get used to it. Right. It's hard to speak up. It's hard to go against the, the group, it, but that's what you get trained to do as a lawyer, but also it's my personality style. So there's that. I also have done my research. I've gone to school. I have done every single training, every single class I possibly can on the outcomes of what happens when you're included versus when you're not. So I know if we're going to go with best practices, which is what we're doing in education for everybody else, why would we not do that for our students with disabilities? Like clearly the path, there is data out there to show what happens when a person is institutionalized versus when they're supported or living more in their community. It's safer. It's healthier. You make more money. There's so many more protections. There's just, it's, it's, it's there. 
but we're all pioneers though, right? Because in the past, none of this happened. People were not included. So I give grace, a lot of grace to everybody because this is new for all of us. It really is. Even though the data is there and even though we know it, I just feel like it's give and take. Like I go into it as here's what, this is the North Star goal, but we really, but we also need to give grace to people to be able to do that if they're there to, to be able to figure out the path to do that in the best, fastest way, so to speak. Sarah, I'm an attorney like you yeah. and a parent and something that I preach to my students when I'm teaching advocacy to parents and to attorneys and advocates, as well as to my clients in my private practice is I like to say conflict yields effective change. And I talk a lot about this book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The author is Patrick Lencioni, and he really talks about how we have to have what he calls ideological conflict in order for people on a team to get buy-in. So if we do the opposite of creating conflict and addressing things with which we don't agree or things that are uncomfortable, that everybody just goes along. And then at the end, nobody has any buy-in. Nobody takes any ownership. Your kind of ego gets in the way and you're like, that's what you wanted because nobody else believes in it. So if we apply that to a teaching practice or a curriculum that we're going to implement or something like that, and we're all on an IEP team and we're all supposed to be doing what's right for the child in order for the child to make meaningful progress and an ego gets in the way, the child's obviously not going to make meaningful progress. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your comment before where you said, I'm okay being uncomfortable and how that conflict becomes an almost necessary piece to advocacy, but it doesn't have to be adversarial. And I think that's the real sticking point that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's like, I don't want conflict. But what we say in our field is, yeah, you can be very respectfully conflictual or you can address that conflict. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, that you're right. And that's what I always say when I have conversations, what I try to do, because I know not most people don't think like that. I would, I've learned over time is that it is maybe an attorney way of thinking or an advocate way of thinking, or I think there's a group of people who think like that, but I don't think everyone thinks like that. So what I try to do is say, I try to bring it back and say, look, we, like I just said, we are all doing something new, right? This is what we as, this is the, these are the visions that we have for our children, or this is the vision we have for our child. Here's why. And we're a team. And usually people are weighing in on that team based on their experiences with, let's say one of my children. We try to do the trajectory. Like if we're trying to get to the, if we're trying to get to the end goal, how do we do that? Let's problem solve this together. And if we can at least get agree on the goal, the end goal, which sometimes requires time. Here's an example. This is a perfect example because my, my older son is actually getting ready to go graduate from high school. In kindergarten, we put in his IEP that he will go to college. And I, with a straight face, said, this is our goal. And my husband was there too. We said, this is going on the IEP. It's in writing, it's on there. And at that time, everyone on our team was wonderful, all wonderful human beings. 
great special ed teachers, great. We had our preschool team there probably at the time, like everyone there is wonderful, but everyone kind of looked like eyes wide open, like, okay. At that time, there probably was like one university or two, maybe. There weren't that many kids at all going, but they just started. And I remember saying the words like, when my, when he graduates, there will it, the school that exists there, where he'll go probably doesn't even exist yet right now. And now at that time, that was the case. There were probably only a couple of schools or one. Now there's over 300 of those schools, of those universities. What I did for that was what we did. I shouldn't just take all the credit. My husband and I did this together was to say, how do we get them to that college? How do we get them there? That is going to be our goal. Ultimately, that's the goal. We don't know what that college will look like. We don't know what kind of supports it'll be. We don't know. We don't know anything, but we know that's our goal. And I think that sometimes helps people deal with, it's like problem solving instead of conflict, although clearly it can be conflict and not to take it personally and to say, this is what I think. It's not my way or the highway, but just trying to like, I think sometimes you can get better with being okay with this conflict or challenge if you can truly explain that the goal is the end goal and we all have to problem solve it together and to give grace and and I say that and I say that because we can't there's there are kids and I'm a lawyer too believe me I understand if I was representing a client versus versus my child it would be different but being able to have some you don't want to cave, but you also have to have flexibility. There has to be give and take. And that will help you, I think, to feel a little bit more comfortable saying something that maybe others don't agree with. That's how, that's how I do it. Um, Because I know the recipients don't want conflict and I'm not afraid of it. Yeah. I think that's really powerful, comprehensive advice. We like to end around here with a little bit of fun. So Our questions are as follows. What are you watching right now? I have, you're going to laugh at me. I like reruns. I like basic reruns. So (laughs) the one that I've been watching a lot lately is Young Sheldon. And I know it's been around forever, but I love it because I just love him. I think he's so clear. (laughs) And I guess he just reminds me of a lot of people that I encounter in life. So that's my favorite show right now. It's just funny. I love the parent dynamics. I love the sibling dynamics. I think it's fun. Kate, you watch any reruns? I do. I go to bed to Golden Girls every night, which I I didn't watch back in its heyday. And they were so progressive. For when it was filmed, I'm like, yeah. So (laughs) it's supposed to lull me to sleep, but I just get all fired up about how much I love them. I love it. I love Golden Girls too. It's awesome. I've been working on some of my executive functioning. Like I'm really bad with initiation after dinner. I just can't put the laundry away. I can't unload the dishwasher. So I, and I'm not a TV person really. So I just started watching Gilmore Girls literally from the first episode to the end. And it's like my distraction methodology in order to get up and do something. So I, we're all doing reruns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> reruns and it just seems simple I don't know the times were simpler I don't know yeah something calming about it I agree yeah what are you listening to I am almost done with and I actually wanted this isn't the only thing I'm listening to but I wanted to tell you about this in case you haven't listened to it for everyone it's so great have you heard of the happiness lab by Dr. Lori Santos yeah I love that I just love that yeah 
I'm pretty much done with it, but I just love putting things into perspective and trying to understand how to think to help yourself. I think I'm a happy person, but I do like the idea of understanding it objectively and through a scientific way. There's a lot of really good, there are so many good things that I, I, I never understood the reason behind it. I like to understand why. There's a lot of intuitive things that she talks about. And you're like, I always wondered why that was that way. And I think they explain it pretty well. So that's what I like. Can I tell you something I learned on that podcast that I thought was so interesting? Yes. So if you write down your worries, it shifts them from your like, I'm sure the real words were in there, but like your worry center of your brain into like the writing center of your brain. It moves your worries. I was like, oh, that'll help you process your worries. Yeah, it's crazy. That's probably why journaling is so good. I'm sure, right? That was some people do their self journals. Yeah, Yeah. that was the recommendation. One of my, I will say that over the years, that's something that my kids sometimes they'll perseverate about something, which is usually a worry. So I've seen therapists or teachers say, "We're going to write those worries on this piece of paper and then set it aside, and then come back to it later." That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. cool. What about reading? What are you reading right now? All right. So now I'm going to tie in my first answer with this. So I just started to read, it's called Surrender and it's by Bono because I love you too. Mm -hmm. So he just wrote his own memoir and there's, it's 40 songs and there's 40 chapters and every chapter is on one of his songs. So, you know, he's a storyteller. He wrote all these songs. How cool is that? He wrote, he writes these songs as an artist and he's lived this incredible life and here he is writing this book. And I'm like, that's what self-determination is right there. And that's actually where I came up with that. I just, I thought about that. Could you write, if you could write your own songs and he obviously he sang his own songs. That's really cool. So I just started reading it. So it's all new. And we have now come full circle with Sarah Bitter. Yes. Thank you for doing this. See you, Sarah. It's great to see you too. Thank you for all that you do, both of you, all of you actually, and Christy too. But thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us. If you are interested in learning about the University of Cincinnati's special education, undergraduate or graduate programs, please visit us at online.uc.edu backslash special education. If you are interested in learning more about our programs for young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, please visit cech.uc.edu backslash ATS. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at advancetheconversation at uc.edu.